All right, welcome to episode number 25 of the Friday Froster. Today, the National Fraud League and the Horrible Hardware. <laughs> Ellie. Okay, I just put in the I just put in the chat. Let's all be goldfish today. We're gonna forget everything and start over. <laughs> they have a second, second, seven second memory, and tonight is Ted Lasso. And I can't watch it because my husband's out of town until Sunday, and we can't watch it until he gets back. So. <laughs> no. What? I know. I know. Who's a Ted Lasso? Put in the chat if you're a Ted Lasso fan, and why? Well, I mean, if the television happens to be on and you just happen to walk by it and it happens to be on, I mean. <laughs> I'm not a good liar. When we watch it Sunday night and all of a sudden they start laughing before the, you know, he's going to know. The gig will be up. So, um, yeah. Who else is a Ted Lasso fan? Do we not have Ted Lasso fans here? Mark, what's going on? Not much. I'm trying to figure out who Ted Lasso is. Wait, uh, you don't watch Ted Lasso? Not a oh, clue. Oh, it's on Apple TV. Oh, my God. It's on Apple TV. It's delightful. I don't watch Apple TV show. because I respect Robert. And he doesn't like Apple. Well, <laughs> I like Apple because I bought Apple stock a long time ago. <laughs> you know what, though? Speaking of Apple, I have a special announcement to make. The Friday Fraudster. Available on all of your favorite podcasting platforms now, including Apple. You, so, you, you sold out. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you sold out. <laughs> so do us a favor, you guys. Go over to the Apple App Store and go leave us a five-star review because I think that we're worth it. Today's conversation alone is worth a five-star review. And, you know, Dan is here and Dan says... <laughs> Who is Ted? Say yay. <laughs> now, Thomas says that's the problem. Apple is the devil. I agree. But I had no. to get it on the Apple podcasting platform. And Deidre is here, and she says, me too, Mark. Deidre is another droid, I guess, just like me. We like droids. We don't like apples over here. We don't like the forbidden. Although the Friday Froster is on the Apple podcasting platform. <laughs> I'm going to stick to my beliefs until I stop. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Look, now you guys know the deal. As you come into the chat room, let's drop that emoji into the chat that signifies the mood that you're in right now. Because we want to know if you're in a good mood. We want to make sure that you are in a good mood. Why? Well, because we sincerely do care about you. So what mood are you guys in today? Let us know. Now, Thomas said, time to stop watching the show if it's on Apple. Well, no. Thomas, you don't have to stop watching the show. You can just not watch it on Apple. I mean, <laughs> but yep, there we are. We, we, we're on Apple right about now. Oh, wait, we don't want me to have the big focus here. <laughs> now, Pozo is smirking. Is that because we're on Apple now, Pozo? Deidre is sleeping. Deidre, hopefully you're at home and not at work sleeping in your office. That would be bad. <laughs> you know what? 
before we get into into today's stories, I've got another special treat. Let's talk about my favorite villain. I don't know if you guys have been following the Elizabeth Holmes trial, but recently they have delayed the trial. It's coming back Tuesday because one of the jurors potentially has COVID. They took a home test and it came up negative. And I think they went to the doctor and got a formal test. So we shall see what's going to happen because the trial has been delayed until Tuesday. So now, Alicia Holmes was really a scientist. Maybe she poisoned. Maybe she coughed on her. But we Ooh. know she's not really a scientist. Ah. Have, has anyone go. seen the woman who worked at SAP who went viral? Coughing on people in a grocery store who's now unemployed. Oh, was that the... No, I didn't see that one. Oh, bad. Yikes. That's very bad. So Alicia's in a weird mood today, and Laurie is in a silly mood, and Dan, well, Dan is all smiles, and Clarence, my man, Clarence is all smiles, and we know why Clarence is all smiles. He sold us. He likes Friday. So, so Clarence is all smiles and Dan says obsessed. Wait, are you obsessed with the show that Kelly likes, Dan? Or are you obsessed with Android? Or are you obsessed with Apple? Or are you just an obsessive person all the way around? Hey, you know what Dan did this week for me? What Dan sent me some student reviews of his class and they loved my book. Nice. So thank you, Dan. Good. That was really nice. It was so nice. It made my day. Right? Yeah. Listening to the podcast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dan says we all need to listen to John Kerry. I say his name wrong. Say his name, Kerry. Kerry. Uh, uh, Kelly. Kerry Brew. <laughs> Thank you. Podcast Bad Blood number four. Maybe I'll listen to it on Apple. No, I won't. No, I won't. All right, you look, before we get into the into today's stories, I got something else I want to talk to you guys about. Uh and Hal emailed me and he said he might not be here today and true to his word, I don't think he's here. What a bummer. But Hal sent a story um that is quite interesting. Let me see if I can find it. Ah, there it is. So, um if I can close some of these pop-ups so the OCC has fined Wells Fargo $250 million for continued risk management failings. And this is a fresh story from today or yesterday. Uh, if you guys remember the 2018 incident where they had all kinds of stuff and they went under a corporate integrity agreement. If you've watched past episodes, we've talked about what that is and what that means. Well, now in the follow up, apparently they're not um, doing what they need to do as it relates to that agreement. And some of the bullet points are pretty interesting. So um, this is a part of a new cease and desist order that includes some of the following. Failure to fully implement and maintain adequate loss mitigation practices and related independent risk management practices commensurate with the bank's size, complexity, and risk profile. Another bullet point says errors caused by uh, loss mitigation decisioning tools and operational deficiencies that negatively affected borrowers and inadequate controls and insufficient oversight of loss mitigation that caused the bank's failure to timely detect, prevent, 
and quantify inaccurate loan modification decisions and impaired the bank's ability to fully and timely remediate harmed customers. And this last one is one that kind of gets me. Internal audit coverage of loss mitigation activities that is deficient and fail to include all aspects of previously identified loan modification decision issues. So before we get started with our stories today, I, I want to bring up a question to us and I want to have a discussion about this. And I want to get you guys' opinion on it, both you, Kelly, Mark, and everybody listening. Oftentimes, over the last several years, especially after the 2008 banking collapse, we heard the words a lot that a, it's possible a company could be too big to fail. That's what we heard a lot when the bank bailouts happened in 2008. So here's the question that I have. Is it possible that some entities may actually be too big to succeed or too big to manage because there's so much going on and they are so intricate? We've had the too big to fail discussion. Hmm. Is it time to now have the too big to succeed discussion? Because Wells Fargo has a lot of money. They make a lot of money if you look at their financial statements. And yet they fail to implement some of the practices. And I, I just I, at this point, I don't think it's because they have a management team that doesn't want to fix the things. And I, I refuse to believe that at this point it's because they have sorry employees. I think that I don't think that that's it. That there's you know, you've been reprimanded and fined by the government. Why would you purposely continue to do some of the things that that are happening? And I know people that work for Wells Fargo in the audit department, and those are some the, the people that I know are really good people. So are we too too big to succeed? What do you guys think? Uh, Wells Fargo. Um, <laughs> I mean, is it ever going to end? I, I, I just like. And clearly these fines, how many, what is the total amount of fines that have happened? Um, like I wouldn't bank there if, you know, you paid me to bank there. I, I, and I feel badly for the employees because like you, I think there's tons of really, really good employees. I just like, you know, I want the government to show some and say, this is what happens. And maybe they're the sacrilegious lamb, but who, like how many billions have they actually paid in fines? And and then the people are like, well, where'd those billions go? It's just, I don't know. Maybe I'm just too Pollyanna. I want them, I want them gone. They opened a fraudulent account for my father-in-law. I just like, you know, stop it. <laughs> yeah. What do you think, Mark? To be able to succeed? I, I don't think they're too big to succeed. I think the problem is uh, profitability still is the number one item, and they've made changes they need to make in order to survive. But really, when you look at how bad their past problems are, you need some innovative leaders to come in and say, we're not going to do it the way we've always done it. Because I would suspect that if you look at their track record over the last decade, their operational practices have not changed a whole lot. They've band-aided certain areas, but really what they needed to do was do more than just that. And, and you can change out that top leadership, but unless they take steps within the uh, leadership to call out people who are bad behaviors, 
the the same issues are going to keep coming up again and and that doesn't speak to the individual employee right. they could be a good individual employee and they're just being you know shelled around based on uh policies and procedures that don't work and you know dan said where's the ia committee you know with regard to uh putting together the audit plan and doing the areas i mean when they're told they're not auditing the areas where there was problems that's just elementary i mean what do you got a couple of you know uh i can't see i can't use some other profession or somebody will get mad at me here you know <laughs> Do you have a couple of welders running the, the bank? I mean, what's going on here? It makes sense that you have internal audit, audit the stuff where there's problems. I don't know. Yeah. All right. So now this is starting in a very interesting discussion because like you said, Dan says, IA deficiency, where was the audit committee? Who approves the IA audit plan? And Pozo says, absolutely. Silos, egos, ethics, incentives, profitability, Industry practices and fines being chump change, who knows? And Dan says, where is the investor outrage? Now, Deidre has a different opinion. Deidre says, uh, wait, Deidre says, I don't think it's too big to, to succeed. I think the bigger you get, the more you need a good internal control system absolutely. and ethical culture. Now, I do agree with that. The more you need it. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, but do you necessarily have it? Deidre also says the hardest thing to do is change a culture uh, of an entity because so many people are resistant to change. Yeah, great. Absolutely. And Clarence says as long yep. as they're making money. Yeah. People won't say anything. Yeah. Yeah. Which I is why, why there's no investor outrage because they're uh, still yeah, making the stock money. stock has not done well. The stock has not done well. It, is it down? Um, it hasn't kept up with the Dow. You could say. Right. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, so, you know, maybe. I but, but there's kind of like a, a late curve in that. If it's not keeping up, the outrage will come, but it's usually not coincidental with the problems. So you're going to see that investor outrage come. It's just a matter of time if they keep underperforming. Well, and like the outlook for is, you know, bearish, bearish, bearish. Yeah. I mean, I don't have Wells Fargo stock and if I did have it, I'd sell it. But I mean, I'd sell it for just based on moral purposes. Yeah. There are certain stocks that I will not buy due to my morals. I know you guys find that shocking. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, no, no. it's true. I have I have investor rules. Well, and I think we all should have investor rules. And hopefully you guys don't mind the diverge the, the divergent uh, 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 path that I'm taking us down because I know I sent you guys the stories we were going to talk about today, but this just popped up. I Hal just sent it, uh, uh, I want to say maybe a couple of hours ago, he posted it and it just struck me, the Elizabeth Holmes one and then the Wells Fargo one. And I actually like the discussion that we're having. But but before we move on, let me just say, here's, here's under the new um, OCC cease and desist order, Here's what they said. Wells Fargo must take, and I quote, broad and comprehensive act uh, corrective actions to improve the execution, risk management, and oversight of the bank's loss mitigation program. This includes the following three core elements. One, establishing a compliance committee of at least three members. Now, I, I would have thought that they already had one, so I don't know if this is saying they didn't have one or they're just saying, okay, 
I, I don't know. Then it says, of which a majority shall be directors who are not employees or officers of the bank or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates, according to the OCC document. The committee will be responsible for approving the bank's action plan, monitoring and overseeing compliance with provisions of the consent order and submitting a written progress report to the board. Number two, establishing a loss mitigation independent risk management program, and I quote, designed to ensure that the bank has effective and independent monitoring and testing of its loss mitigation program. And three, this one was weird, three, adopting an internal audit program that, quote, adequately assesses controls and operations with respect to the bank's loss mitigation activities. So that one struck me as weird because that's a direct comment on the audit department. But also, if you've looked at LinkedIn lately and gotten a bunch of uh, those job alerts, Wells Fargo has had a ton of them lately, just bombarding your feed. So, um, yeah, I thought this was something to have a worthy discussion on. And it just... Uh, so anyone who wants to go to sleep and having some problems, 23 page code of conduct. I, I put the link in there wow. at 23 pages. I, I bet no one can like, I mean, don't even start. Every like, employee read every word of they it. They have to have a glossary, uh, final thoughts. Like, oh my God, I just, ah, sorry. I, I'm a little testy today. But you know what? I have to tell you guys this. This is really very exciting. I tweeted about being a goldfish and Jason Sudeikis of, you know, Saturday Night Live and Ted yeah. Lasso. He liked my tweet. Oh, so nice. I am now a goldfish. <laughs> That's pretty big that Jason Don't know Sudeikis what that means either. So are you going to forget about the like in about seven seconds? <laughs> no. But you're a goldfish. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So, so let's let let's go ahead and dig into our first story. Oh boy! <clears throat> Wait before we do that. <laughs> Deidre, can you send? Can you... Oh my God, Deidre, you have a great idea. We could literally make a documentary about codes of conduct. Oh my God, that would be so much fun. We could like take a line out of like Uber's code of conduct and then show all the tweets. Oh, Deidre, like that is genius. Deidre is on to something. Wait a minute, wait. For our listeners who aren't watching us, let me <clears throat> let me get this out without laughing. <clears throat> Deidre said, can you send me a link to the movie version of the code of conduct? Oh, good. I got it. <laughs> there it is. I did it. So who's going to star in it? Oh my god. <laughs> that movie would be like watching procurement fraud videos. I mean, come on. Oh no, I think that I think Michael Lewis, I think Michael Lewis could write a whole book with codes of conduct and then make a hit movie on it. Come on, Deidre, send it to Michael Lewis for him to do uh, codes of conduct and a movie. All right, all right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Our first story for today. You guys have seen the title, the National Fraud League. And what we're talking about, if you hadn't heard the story, the NFL. So there have been several NFL players accused of, well, let's just talk about it. They've been accused of defrauding one of their health plans. 
the Gene Upshaw NFL player health reimbursement account was a health care plan providing benefits to certain former NFL football players. The plan was established in 2006 after a collective bargaining agreement between the NFL and the Players Association. Now, to qualify for the plan, you needed to have a certain number of credit seasons in order to participate in the plan. And the plan benefited um, the former player and after his death, the player's dependents. Hmm. It also benefited the spouse and other dependents and qualifying children uh, while the player was alive as well. But the plan was a reimbursement plan for participants for the actual amount of medical expenses incurred. So for the actual amount incurred. So essentially what happened is you, you got to bank a certain amount of money in the plan. And the longer you were in the league, the more money you got to put in the plan. So it was kind of like some of our prepaid uh, 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 health savings account plans is what it was similar to. Um, <laughs> and what ended up happening is if you were reimbursed for legitimate medical expenses, obviously they came out tax free. There were ways that you could uh, get money from the plan that weren't medical related, but you had to pay, pay taxes or you could possibly pay taxes on those. Now, it was run and managed by a health board. And that health board had the authority to assign an administrator. The administrator that was assigned to oversee the health plan was Cigna Health, right? A big health company. So we're we're familiar with Cigna. The defendants and their co-conspirators are accused of engaging in a scheme to defraud the plan by submitting and causing to be submitted false and fraudulent claims for reimbursements for expenses for medical equipment. Kelly, Mark. Well, I'm putting some fun things in the comments. Did you know that one in six NFL players go bankrupt? I knew that. Who watched the show Ballers? Yeah. The crazy lifestyles. So I put in the 20 NFL players who went completely broke. Just FYI, fun fraud facts. Um, they bought things like hyperbaric oxygen chambers, cryotherapy machines, um, and then electromagnetic therapy designed for use on horses. I, I don't know. I bet some of them bought some ivermectin. <laughs> They, they also bought ultrasound machines, too. Yep. Which they probably turned around and sold. Yeah, yeah. So what say you, Mark? Well, they, they didn't actually get any of that stuff, right? They, there they, you go. Yeah, so uh, how, the, the question I have, which I couldn't tell from the articles I read, was how long did it take Cigna to catch on to the fact because I assume as the plan administrator, they were supposed to be looking over the documentation, not the NFL, right? Yeah. So how long, how long did it take them to catch on to the fact that these ridiculous claims were being made, uh, the fraudulent claims were being made? All right. So before about, about an hour before we got on air, I actually found some of the indictments. So those were pretty interesting. So over the course of the scheme, it started June 2017 and continued uh, until about December of 2018. 
So the co-conspirators submitted or caused to be submitted to the plan false and fraudulent claims totaling approximately $2.8 million. So the, as Kelly just said, the, the false and fraudulent claims were for expensive medical equipment such as hyperbolic oxygen chambers, ultrasound machines, um, and electromagnetic therapy devices. So, you know what just like tweaks me here? There are two justice systems in the United States. So you have three NFL players and there's more. Has one Wells Fargo employee gone to prison? And it's like, this is the NFL's money. Wells Fargo is ripping off consumers. Like just until, until you hold the top accountable, I just like, I, I have to say, I feel a little bad. There are two justice systems. There, not one Wells Fargo person has gone to prison. And if that's it has, it's been a low-level person that they've thrown under the bus. That's a very good point. I never even thought about that because the, these NFL players will most likely go to prison. Uh, from oh, what yeah. I'm seeing, it's uh, wire fraud. And so like, so one of the indictments actually said, Cigna, in its role as the benefits administrator, determined that the plan should pay many of the false and fraudulent claims that the defendants submitted uh, and in deciding that the claims should be paid, Cigna relied on the representations in the reimbursement request forms, including the participants' certifications that the expenses for which reimbursements were being requested had been incurred, as well as on the fabricated documents accompanying the reimbursement forms that the defendants submitted. So here's what's happening here, you guys. So one of the players, he ooh, a few of them submitted false documents, but they actually filled out reimbursement forms and faxed those over to Cigna because Cigna was receiving them via facsimile. OK, but then they also um, falsified prescriptions and uh, medical records and things like that from legitimate doctors. So they actually sent over fake prescriptions to Cigna and they falsified their reimbursement claims. And for much of the equipment, they never even purchased the equipment. So it's not like they got some of it they didn't need and then sold it for money. They actually never even purchased it because they falsified documentation. Yeah. And because the money was sent via, via uh, wire and ACH transfer to them, that is how they have gotten with uh, stuck with wire fraud charges. So how is like, I mean... I don't know, but it's it's tiresome to see Wells Fargo continue, continue, continue. And then you see and, you know, what they did was wrong. There is no question what they did was wrong. But does it hurt consumers? No, it hurt the NFL. And, you know, they make oodles of money, whereas Wells Fargo is taking advantage of like, you know, when when is someone higher up going to get caught? and get sent to prison. I, I think it's probably a matter of what we talked about last week a little bit of low-hanging fruit. This yeah. is a simple case. So yeah. we pursue simple cases. The Wells Fargo one, it, when they go to bat on that one, you know Wells Fargo is going to have the best and the brightest attorneys representing them, and it becomes a much more difficult uh, agenda to accomplish of, of, of getting them. You have to have uh, people investigating and prosecutors who have the intestinal fortitude, again, uh, to go after the, the, the higher fruit in the tree. But, but in the meantime, do we put off going after this 
because it's a lower hanging fruit. You know, because if we're waiting for them to go after the high hanging fruit, there'd be an awful lot of crime going on on the streets in the meantime. Yeah. You know, now that you guys say it this way, here, here's another thought about this case. When you look at it, this is money that they actually put into the plan. So they, I, didn't, I, mean, I didn't read it that way, Robert. I don't think they do you saw where they contributed it because I saw that the the agreement the collective bargaining agreement said that uh, each player was entitled to up to $350,000 over the lifetime of uh making claims to the plan? Yeah. No, no, you're right. They didn't directly put the money in. They they were allotted a certain amount of money based on their years of service, service. in the NFL. Yeah, yeah. So now, what's interesting, though, is you could draw the money out, but you would probably be taxed for it if it wasn't for a medical expense. So they submitted fraudulent documents. But from a dollar amount standpoint, the real harm outside of the unethical fraudulent documents would be the taxable amount that they didn't pay for getting the money out because they, they were entitled to the money if if the medical claims were legitimate and in certain circumstances without medical claims, if you file the right paperwork, but they would have been taxed. Uh, but it, it, you got me thinking about what Kelly said uh, several episodes beforehand. Wire fraud is the easy thing to convict people on, and that's why it's used a lot. So that, that actually does make a whole lot of sense. Not excusing the act here because that was wrong. They, they took the money under fraudulent claims because apparently they, they uh, what does it say? They fabricated um, medical claims. They fabricated prescriptions. They, uh, let's see, one guy fabricated a letter from a medical provider describing his impersonated on the phone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He actually called and and impersonated uh, uh, someone on the phone. So they did a lot to pull this scheme off. They, They actually did. Yeah. But back to your question, Mark. Shouldn't Cigna have realized that some of these things were fake? Well, what what type of you know auditing did they do of this program when in fact what they claimed their reason for paying it was that the person certified it to be true? I don't know, but I've understood that sometimes people lie. <laughs> I I mean, you know, did you check anything out associated with it, or did you say, well? You know, uh, Porter said it, he got it, so it must be the case. I mean, it just, they obviously got paid to administer a program and all they did was pencil whip it. You know, Pozo brings up a good point. Cigna didn't request proof of payment for the reimbursement. $350,000 is nothing compared to uh, executive fraud. But yeah, normally, I, you know, with my health reimbursement plans, you know, you would have to send in a receipt as well. So maybe they fabricated the receipts as well. So that's well, a possibility. That, that is a possibility. They had fabricated invoices showing that they had purchased the uh, those items, that, you know, like the ultrasound machine. They generated invoices to support all that. FakeReceipt.com. Yeah, that's true. Very true. Very, very true. Now, Dan says, uh, politics, Washington stops the DOJ from prosecuting Wells Fargo. It's very possible. I mean, we bailed the banks out in 2008. So, 
you know, we we've set the precedent for government helping out the large banks. <laughs> well, and you know what? There, I, I'm going to go with the psycho stuff on this. Is the football players are going to say it didn't hurt anyone? There's that disconnect between them and the insurance company, and when you have that disconnect, you know, people don't. It, it's it's a victimless crime, and. Uh, you know, the Wells Fargo bankers are going to say, we're just the smarter ones in the room. And I, it's just like, I'm so exhausted by the people thinking they can get away with it. I just, it, I'm exhausted. Well, that's, that's the issue across the board though, right? It doesn't matter what level you're at is I think I can get away with it. Yeah. Which is a disrespect and a, and a, this disingenuous position to all of mankind that you surround yourself by, because there is no victimless crime. There's a victim in every crime. You have to look a little further for it. I guess if they don't have an ax sticking out of your head, then I guess they're not a victim. I mean, sorry, we're paying higher prices around the board because of the need for, uh, you know, compliance unit, audit units, uh, internal control units, loss prevention departments, because people rip people off and they say it's victimless. Well, I don't like paying for all that. I Unless I guess I should start stealing, then I would get some of what I want back. Right. I don't know. Crazy. Yeah, not, not quite how it works, though, right? No. <laughs> All right. So let, let, let's catch some of our folks up because Alaba is here and he said he was ready to join, then got carried away. And now he's late. And then he came back again. So <laughs> today, <laughs> today, guys, our topic was the National Fraud League. And uh, we before we got to that, we talked a little bit about Wells Fargo, because apparently there's a new cease and desist order from the OCC where they're saying that Wells Fargo has not lived up to an agreement that they uh, said that they would live up to uh, in 2018 because of a scandal that happened. And there were a lot of things that came out of this uh, failures in compliance and in internal auditing. So we had some discussions surrounding that. We also talked about the fact that apparently a juror in the Elizabeth Holmes trial possibly has COVID and the trial has been delayed until Tuesday. And then we jumped into our National Fraud League story where we're talking about NFL players who have defrauded a health plan where they were allowed to, on a tax-free basis, claim certain expenses up to the tune of about $350,000. Uh, but they sent in fake invoices, fake, possibly fake receipts, fake prescriptions in order to get the money for equipment that they did not order. Some of that equipment was expensive equipment and things that maybe men wouldn't use like a, a ultrasound machine. And I mean, granted, sometimes they do use ultrasounds to look at your insides, but you would go to the doctor to have that done. You wouldn't have a personal uh, uh, ultrasound machine in your home. They also ordered things like hyperbolic chambers and things like that. So that was kind of weird. And it was determined that it was fraud. And so here we are. So Pozo says, uh, oh, no, we already read that one. So Clarence says, I will never understand why a person would risk their livelihood and freedom for money. But Thomas 
brings up a good point because I actually saw this show. There's a show called Broke on ESPN. And um, he said it was eye-opening. One former athlete had 31 cars. Who needs 31 cars? I agree 100% with that. Who in the world needs 31 cars? Well, and to go to my little hashtag thing is greed, not need. These were not poor people. Like, I mean, I know they spent all their money, but like when I was a stockbroker at Dean Witter, we had a former college D1 athlete who he ended up becoming, you know, a financial advisor to athletes. That was his, you know, his pot of clients. And you'd see these guys come in dressed like, you know, no tomorrow. And uh, they weren't poor. They, they weren't going to lose a house. Maybe they'd lose a, you know, a 20,000 square foot house, but most people could live several lifetimes on what they have banked through or, you know, spent. Yep. So it's greed, not me. Hashtag greed. That was the other thing. Someone said yesterday, they didn't like me saying hashtags. I love my hashtags. What's wrong with hashtags? That's a part of who you are. So I you know. have to go for certain things. <laughs> I know. Uh, so National Fraud League, fake invoices, fake prescriptions, fake reimbursements, all up under a real company that does health insurance for a living, Cigna. Cigna is not a small company. So where do you guys think the controls may have broken down and how? I was trying to find how they found it. Unfortunately, I was not able to find that. But what in the world? I didn't see that either. I was hoping one of the two you found uh, uh, how they found out about it Uh, and, and, you know, how it got out. I would assume it uh, came from Cigna, probably identified some of that fraudulent stuff and then took a, a little closer look at it and then reported it back to that there were these aberrations in the program and and that's probably how it came about because uh, i couldn't see anything on how it came about either uh controls it, it's hard to say because what was the contract between the nfl and cigna for overseeing that program uh i would think that if and again we were talking about how badly the government writes uh computer you know, for uh, getting computer systems, right? So how did the NFL write this relationship with Cigna? What did they make them responsible for? And did Cigna invest the time and the effort and the money necessary because they want to get the most they can out of it? So did they invest the money necessary to ensure compliance in the program? Or did they just not put the time in? Because I can't see how this would have gone on. It didn't go on as long as some of these do, but I can't see that it went on for the amount of time it did with the ridiculous expenses and they didn't catch it. Well, so I just looked something up and um, it says one former player told investigators that John Eubanks posted a message on Facebook about looking for ex-players who wanted to draw money from the health plan. And there was a group text involving 40 to 50 players discussing ways to get money from the health plan. Now, this doesn't make it right. The NFL played it, paid into it. And I'm going to say, going on a limb here, these are athletes that, you know, they uh, they use their bodies every single day and they get injured and everything like that. And they see the NFL owners is like 
they're like, I'm getting a piece of my what's due to me because all the owners are billionaires. I'm going there. I think you have to be a billionaire to own an NFL team. And they're just saying, I'm getting a piece of it. They owe it to me because, you know, I, I, I'm on painkillers, whatever. That's their mentality. Okay, you yeah. guys are quiet. Did I say something bad? No, no, no. I, I, no, but, I would... but you, you essentially gave an excuse for any criminal to commit crime because everybody's just getting their piece of the pie. Right? I mean, it, it's yeah, yeah. no matter what level you're at, if you're the guy stealing from uh, Dollar General, you know, from the, the local mall, uh, you're getting your piece because you're not getting enough. If you're stealing from, you know, the welfare system, well, they're not giving me enough. I wouldn't have to steal. So we can work that all the way up to the Wells Fargo executives that just have a higher threshold of what's theirs than, than the poor guy at Dollar General. Well, you know, and I, I, yeah, but I think I'm a little shocked by what you just read because I didn't find that one. Four, uh, 40 to 50 players and someone said, here's how you can get money out of the program. He, they, he, yeah, he's the guy that he's the main uh, guy in it. Now, Eubanks is the guy that lured in uh, several of the other players into this. And he was having like little training sessions on how to rip off the system. Well, and it almost sounds like they knew that it was wrong then, right? Oh, he knew from what he had put down, he did because he actually solicited several of those players to allow him to use their name in exchange for $10,000 payouts. I did see that. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, you don't do that if you don't know what you're doing is sleazy. Yeah. Well, so one player said um, he was among those who believed that players owned the money in their accounts, Lyon said. Rogers later came to understand the money in the account wasn't his. So, um, you know, how many of these players finished college? How many of them have had people uh, like I'm not excusing it in the least. They are busy buying 31 cars. They're not paying any attention. It's like, oh, so and so yeah. did it. Well, if so and so did it, they're really smart. Then, yeah. I, and, you know. And it could be the case that they actually got conned by a con man. And now, from what I read, it's somewhere like 13 to 15 of them are facing charges. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds like they could have been conned by a con man. And now they're going to face prison time because of that. Because I, I could see that happening. Hey, I've got money from my plan. You can get money from your plan, too. If you just give me this document and you sign that document, you'll have $100,000. Yeah. It's kind of sad when you really look at it in that context, because some of the people that are facing charges may have actually been conned. Wow. I'd say no one probably has a degree in finance. Yeah, that's probably fair to say. And Dan says bad money managers. Ooh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Kelly just typed in, yeah, he told Rogers he, he knew a doctor uh, who could help him get access to the money. Yep. You know, there's a theme in our Friday fraudsters, and it's medical. Like, wow, how many of Absolutely. our Friday fraudsters have had a medical angle? And 
Why is that? Because there's just so much money. You you want to really get ticked off on the medical thing? <laughs> now we're going far afield. You guys ever heard of this guy, Dr. Dunkst, Dunkst from Dallas, Texas? There's uh, been, uh, there's a podcast and there's a, a, a book written on it. He's called Dr. Death. Oh, he I've was, heard of the podcast. He, he was a neurosurgeon in the Dallas area. There's a four-part series that was just on TV about him and the fact that he uh, did 38 surgeries, 33 of them were failures including two deaths, and it took them that long to suspend his license and take action against him. And, and the whole failure of the medical community to pass that on to the licensing board, to pass it on to the national registry, and the whole process. He's in jail for life for uh, criminally negligent hom homicide for those wow. one of those deaths. But fascinating to look at the, the, the way the major uh, health systems didn't report them because they had a loophole that said, well, we don't have to report them. We can report them, but we don't have to report them. And they just passed them on to another hospital. And he went and he killed people in surgeries in those hospitals. And it was essentially two doctors that stood up and got him uh, uh, taken out. But fascinating when, when we're talking about victims and, you know, who's a victim of a crime and you say, well, these white collar things, there's no victims. Well, these guys were a victim of the medical community and there were victims. I mean, he, he just sounded like a, he sounded like a hatchet man in the way he did surgeries, but fascinating to look at the controls within those hospitals, even with regard to procedures and how lacking they are. Well, I can tell you guys, again, I, I say this all the time. I, I was a former chief auditor in healthcare, and when things happen, you do have boards, in internal boards within the hospital, committees that sit around and say, should we report this person or should we not? Do we have and, to? Right. Do we have right? to? And I will tell you, you know my stance as a chief auditor. I'm always like, yeah, let's do it. But I've, I've been in meetings where people have said, well, we shouldn't because, and you know, you would find a technicality. Well, because it says technically we don't have to report this. And I'm thinking, yeah, but let's look at the risk here. Let's look at the fallout that could occur if it's determined that this person worked for you and they did the same thing while working for you and you did not report it. That's reputation risk. And that is far more damaging than anything you could possibly experience. But yeah. It, yeah, it's all about the dollar. Yeah. It's all it is. All oh, about the dollar. We don't have to report it. That's good. All right. So what do you guys think? Should we dive into the next story? It's not a long one and it's <laughs> it it won't take long for us to do it. I think we should dive right in. You guys game? Yeah, I'm game. I I think it's a great one. Yeah. All right. Next story. Horrible hardware is what I've titled this one. And whew. All right, you guys. A former Yale. That's right. That Yale. A former Yale administrator is accused of stealing as much as $30 million in computer hardware from the Ivy League school, where she secretly ran a scheme 
for nearly a decade to resell the equipment for her own profit. She's 41 years old and she's been charged with fraud and money laundering, not stealing and theft of property, but okay, got it. <laughs> got it. She started working for the school in 2008 in their school of medicine. Speaking of healthcare, <laughs> she eventually got promoted to be the director of finance and administration. <clears throat> she had the authorization to make purchases below $10,000 for department needs. And beginning at least as early as 2013, she began orchestrating an eight-year money laundering scheme where she instructed employees to make illegal purchases for equipment that she then resold to an out-of-state business for cash that she owned. Now, in an FBI affidavit, it revealed that her purchases were valued at somewhere around $30 million. This year alone, she purchased 8,000 iPads and Surface Pro tablets, in addition to $2.1 million in other equipment between May and mid-August. That's this year alone, you guys. She had a busy summer. Yeah, <laughs> she did. Here's what she would do, though. It said that she falsely represented uh, uh, to Yale in internal forms about the equipment that she bought. So what she would do is she would split the payments. Since her approval authority was $10,000, there was one instance where she actually had her people buy something for $9,102.56. That was 12, uh, 12 purchase orders for eight Surface Pros. Then she had them buy another four Surface Pros for $4,500. So she was splitting invoices so that she wouldn't have to go and get a secondary level of approval. The company was owned by her and it was out of state. So she would send it to that company out of state. Then that company would actually sell the items. So one of the articles says, um, Yale is currently working to quote, identify and correct gaps in its internal financial controls. Wow, amazing. That's a big step. <laughs> Robert, what was the deal like at the uh, at the educational and health institutions you worked at with regard to those threshold purchases? You know, when that whether it's a 5,000 or a, a 10,000, isn't it true that purchases below that get less audit scrutiny? I mean, it still seems that stuff should be audited because I mean, obviously, you can get thirty million out of it pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, here's what I will say: they did not get less audit scrutiny from me. And see, Deidre works in higher education as well. If Deidre is still here, she might just chime in. But yeah, you you would find that people would try to split purchases and split invoices. Um, you know, that's something that you can test for in Excel or using IDEA or ACL or any other data analytic tool, but you would find that some people would try to reduce the cost of services on one invoice and pad it on another. You saw it a lot in construction contracts because the other thing too is if, if potential purchases were above a certain amount, 
you had to bid them out. You couldn't just award someone yeah. that you know you found. So a lot of things happen with that. With construction contracts, you would see, you would look at the add-ons, the change orders, because somebody might have a construction deal for nine thousand dollars, and then the change orders would uh, equal two hundred thousand dollars, two hundred million dollars. No, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that was one thing that you should always look for, especially in governmental agencies, because they do have purchase thresholds. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but what about the side of I mean, do they do this anymore or am I just such an old dinosaur? Uh they used to do inventory audits to make sure that what you bought exists where you are. Did does nobody do that anymore? I mean, it seems like it'd be pretty easy to do. If like with iPads? Yeah. Did, does anybody do that or am I just really old? Here here's what I will say. It depends, right? Because I worked okay. at two education institutions. The first one, they hired a a, a gentleman that I, I respect, admire, still talk to sometimes to this day. He actually made sure that 20,000 inventory items were counted once a year. So he cycled through 20,000 items. Second place I work, there's no inventory counts like that. No. So could it have happened? Possibly. There was no tagging of inventory at all. First place I worked, every item was tagged, regardless of the dollar amount. Um, so, yeah. And what I did was I got with the inventory guy every year. Hey, how'd your counts come out? And so I relied on him because he counted 20,000 items every single year. Well, maybe, I, maybe I'm missing the scope of it, but would anywhere along the line, Yale be wondering why the medicine department bought 8,000 iPads in a three month period. I mean, it, it, you should be a, wondering. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Did Apple I, give them a discount? <laughs> Cause I, I'll tell you now, I'll, I'll give you an example. So um, one university I worked for that was like just really well controlled. I, I mean, just one of the best environments I've ever seen. Um, we had a unit that ordered several hundred maybe even several thousand iPads. And it did, you know, ring the alarm. We ended up, what we found out was they had gotten a grant to buy the iPads because they were using them for some teachers, uh, elementary education teachers. So there was a, an agreement that the university had with some elementary schools where they were giving teachers iPads and they had this training program. But the red flag was there the controller saw it. The controller called me. The controller was like, hey, go take a look at this. But that was also based on the relationship that I had with the controller there, too. Right. So when you have these good relationships in organizations, when the red flag happens over here, they'll alert the audit department. We actually found out that it was legitimate, but it was because there were such sound controls and good relationships. Um, so it really depends on the control environment, the relationships that you have and people's willingness to speak up when they see something that is off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a, well, the other thing you don't see in those articles is how well trusted was she at the university? She'd been there for a decade, obviously received a promotion. You know, was, was she trusted at a level there where nobody questioned what she did? Nobody oversaw what she did. You know, it could be as simple as that internal control snafu again, where they, she did everything, you know, so I, I don't know. I didn't I didn't see anything about that in the articles I read. 
Yeah, well, I will say what struck me as strange is, uh, and I'm looking forward to see if I can find it, because when she first started, her position wasn't one that was over the finances. No. It looks like she was a medical professional. And now when you, in education, when someone has a position that's titled finance and administration and you're over finance and administration, typically what that means is you are the CFO over something. So it sounds like she was the CFO over this medical college without any finance and administration experience, without any accounting experience. So I'm just speculating, but it sounds like she worked her way up because she knew the operations. So now she's in charge of the money. But also in those environments where you have education and healthcare, a lot of times healthcare is somewhat split from the college operationally. You're doing your own thing. So it, it is very well possible that now you have someone who's worked their way up in the medical side. Now, because you know the operational side, you're just over the money and the purchasing from that standpoint. And you have this title, which is essentially the CFO over operations for this medical college. Right. Yeah. So that's it. It's just controls going awry everywhere. Because uh, in theory, what you would like to see is that CFO of the medical college reporting into the finance and administration group for the college as a whole as yep. a secondary level of control. That's what you like to see. But I will tell you, many universities, they split it because the healthcare folks, they, there's usually these internal battles between healthcare and education. And um, they say, well, we're breaking away. We make our own money so we can hire our own CFO. We can do our own thing. And mm -hmm. it is allowed at the highest level in those organizations, which it should not be because the governance and oversight becomes weak and lacking when you allow that to occur. I'm going to say a tip is how this got found. I'm going to go out bet, on a yeah. limb here and it's a tip that got it found. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it was a mistake. I think she just made a mistake. Ah, okay. She, tip mistake. You know, I'm going to say it's not the auditors. She made a mistake. <laughs> she just made the same mistake several times. Yeah. So we we should hire her back and put her in charge of finances for the whole college. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, remember a, on one of our episodes, we had that happen where a yes, woman we, was actually convicted. Wait a minute. We had that last week, too, though where the lady had just gotten out of jail for identity theft and, and they hired her over an area and she did yep. it again. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's a lot so, of money. All right, you guys, the Friday fraudster. Today, you actually got four different stories for the price of one, not just the two. <laughs> so we talked about Elizabeth Holmes and possibly her trial or her, poss her, her trial being delayed for until Tuesday because the juror possibly has COVID. We talked about Wells Fargo. We talked about the National Fraud League, the NFL, and how they submitted fake invoices and fake documentation in order to obtain money from a fund that was uh, supposed to be like a healthcare reimbursement fund. And we talked about a Yale worker who over about an eight year period of time was able to steal about $30 million in hardware, funnel that hardware through a third party company that she owned and she sold it for a profit. <sighs> Man, 
this was pretty bad today, right? Just it's pretty bad. Some bad behaviors out there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm a little disheartened by the NFL one though, because I really can see it playing out where the ring leaders um um almost con some of the other guys into participating in the fraud. Um, and, that, and that saddens me because there'll be some inno innocent gentlemen now who will face jail time. I, well, I won't say innocent, but I don't know. That, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Hmm. <laughs> I'm speechless because I'll just go down a bad rabbit hole, but you guys don't want me to go down. <laughs> oh lordy darn it we should have gone down the rabbit hole at the beginning all right all right all right so so we didn't even talk about whatever we were up to so kelly what what are you what are you up to do you want the, the people to know about Ooh, the podcast um uh next week i have tracy mayleaf who is infosec sherpa on um twitter she's amazing amazing and then the week after that oh my god i have cheryl obermiller who wrote fraud points and then next week i'll have the book um she's a victim and she wrote a fantastic book so many great episodes coming up so and i'm working i got i got real work <laughs> this isn't real work <laughs> pain work <laughs> I do a lot of it for free. This is paying work. There I go. Mark, what are you up to? I am uh, uh, working on several things. I got a presentation for the Utah ACFE uh, coming up in October. Uh, but uh, next week, I'll be heading up to Vermont for a week of training with law enforcement uh, in Vermont on advanced interviewing. And I've been uh, working on uh, a block of instruction and a uh, blog on critical thinking. I don't know if you think critical thinking is lacking, but I think there's a lot of lacking critical thinking going on. So I'm going to address that. Utah ACFE cool. is awesome. The Utah yes. ACFE fraud conference is awesome. Nice. Well, um, I've got a lot going on, but the one thing I will say is go over to uh, the Forbidden Fruit platform and Give us a five star rating on, on the Apple podcasting platform. In all seriousness, uh, we, we just we've been up there for uh, two days now, one or two days. But also go to my website, sign up for my mailing list. I have a lot of really cool stuff coming up. In addition to that, I do give away some CPEs every month. Um, but next week. I will be doing a presentation for the uh, Long Island IA chapter, and it's going to be pretty cool. We're going to have a lot of fun. I'm doing the morning session. Joe is closing it out uh, at the end with the closing afternoon session. Also, I am doing the opening keynote at the IIA's Financial Services Exchange Conference in Washington, D.C. I'm also doing a general session and a concurrent session at the All-Star Conference. I guess I'm an All-Star now, guys, right? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe I'm an All-Star. Um, but also, sign up for my mailing list because starting at the beginning of the year, I have a few new programs coming out that are really, really cool. Mark just talked about critical thinking being lacking. 
Yes, critical thinking is lacking when it comes to auditors, fraud investigators. That is a program I have coming out, but I also have a program coming out on how to influence while auditing and also one on negotiating while auditing. You see, for me, when we talk about audit issues and clients, it's all about influencing and negotiating. That's really what it is. And those are some critical skills that we as audit, audit auditors are lacking. So go to my website, sign up for my mailing list. I've got a lot of cool stuff coming out. And the Audit Bites podcast, I want to thank you for your support on that. I didn't start it with the intention for it to be weekly. I wanted it to be bi-weekly. I think that's what it's eventually going to be. But honestly, I'm having so much fun each week and I'm getting such a good response and the topics just keep coming. I just keep doing it every week. So <laughs> that's that's what I'm working on, guys. I appreciate your support. I'm currently working with a few IIA chapters. So you'll see me at several other chapters soon. And I'm just having a blast. So for the guys that are still here, thank you for joining us on the Friday Froster. And until next week. <laughs>